Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Enjoy a tall, cool dude. I grew up like most kids, worried I couldn't bench two plates, that I wouldn't fit in, that I wouldn't find love. Then I discovered partying, and suddenly all those worries went to the wayside. I didn't need love. I had keg stands. I discovered I was great at raging, and it revealed wonderful things about myself. I could relate to bros regardless of what kind of bro they were. I could be at a party and moon people and everyone would laugh, you know, be witty. Or I could play beer pong and compete with real integrity. In short, I fulfilled my potential. The Nightcap on WGR Sports Radio 550. How's everybody doing tonight? Good? I'm doing pretty good. Got a lot of stuff for you on tonight's episode. The only full nightcap of the week. I'll have a half hour with you tomorrow before we get you to Sabres pregame, before they play the Dallas Stars tomorrow at 8.30. So we'll talk some hockey throughout the course of tonight's show. Also, uh, some bills and uh, some UFC. Normally, I save this for a Friday, but... I think we got Niagara basketball on the air here on Friday. And with the return of Conor McGregor to the UFC, big card coming up on Saturday, I will be joined by Matt Perino of NewYorkUpstate.com, covers the Bills for NewYorkUpstate.com. So we will talk some Bills with Matt, but he also formerly worked for the UFC as their digital media director. So we'll talk some UFC, uh, Conor McGregor and such with Matt Perino. That's going to be in about 15 minutes from now. In the second half of today's show, uh, right out front, I think it's pretty uh, easy guess here. Our interview of the day is absolutely going to be Daniel Carcillo on with Bulldog earlier today. I thought that that was one of the most powerful interviews that I've heard, especially on our station. Um, a lot of gr- just thorough, detailed, emotional, passionate stuff coming from Daniel Carcillo on the world of hockey. And I'll be honest... You listen to that interview, and I don't know how you can't listen to that interview and be thinking about the sport that you watch night in and night out and how you think about the sport and how it operates and how how much tunnel vision there really is to we, we just don't really see any of what is happening behind the scenes. And Carcillo... Um, really brings that to light, I feel. So we'll we'll play that back for you in the second half of today's show. If you don't want to wait for it, uh, I have no issue at all because of how good it was. If you want to shut me off for a little bit, no problem at all. I'll be on demand. I'll be on uh, later. I'll be on uh, WGR Rewind. But you can listen to the Carcillo interview on demand at WGR550.com, um, also on the Radio.com app, or you can listen via Rewind on the Radio.com app as well. I do want to start off, though, with the Sabres and on the surface, what is happening with the team right now. They got a coach fired today. Or yesterday, I should say. They got a coach fired. Maybe, should we be taking that as an insult, by the way? Did Vegas just go, oh, you lost to the Sabres? You're out of here, bud. 
Because I would want to take that as an insult. I, I do believe that it's built up to this. Gerard Gallant being ousted as the Vegas coach. It just It's a weird one. We've had a couple of weird ones this year. Seven coaches fired on the season in the NHL. Now that Gallant is gone. And Pete DeBoer, who was fired earlier in the season by San Jose, he's now the Vegas coach. And if you remember, last year in the playoffs, that Vegas and San Jose series got pretty heated in the playoffs to the point where Gerard Gallant, the now former coach of the Golden Knights, called Pete DeBoer a joke, and Pete DeBoer just took his job. So, funny how that came first full circle. But, that win last night by the Sabres, and it was the, the effort of Jack Eichel on the just incredible highlight reel goal that has been making the rounds. It was on SportsCenter Top 10. It's all over NHL.com and NHL Network. They're using it as content. The Sabres, of course, are tweeting it out. Like They should be tweeting it out every hour, reminding people of the goal that happened last night. It was just so incredible, and it is really, it really is a symbol of how good Eichel has been this season. And also, the point lies there next to it. How much it matters and how much they're wasting this effort. Because for the most part, this team around Jack Eichel is still very poorly constructed. They still have a lot of dead weight on their blue line. They don't have a lot of secondary scoring. They don't have consistent goaltending. Linus Allmark has given them some instance of consistency. But they haven't had some star goaltender. They haven't had that Norris winner on the blue line. They haven't had the star on the blue line. They haven't had... They've had injuries this year. Skinner out, Olsen out. Your best two scoring, goal-scoring wingers are not in the lineup. And all you have to work with is Sam Reinhart. Who, by the way, had an incredible game last night. Those two guys carrying the load, mostly more so Eichel than Reinhardt, obviously. He's got 28 goals already this season. He has matched last year. He is on pace for almost 50 goals. He is on pace for well over 100 points. And yet, the Sabres still find themselves not in a real playoff race. Now, they have the opportunity in the next couple of games. If they want to go win this game in Dallas and they want to go win that game thereafter in Nashville, they get two wins going into the bye week, into the All-Star break. If you told me they're four points out, okay, you're in a real race. But you've been hanging around five, six points. You're five points back right now. Philadelphia has a game in hand on you. They're about to play that game in hand actually on national television. So if you're looking to watch the Flyers and root against them, they're about to play the, the Blues on NBCSN. Is that a real playoff race? Is that really what we're here for? Is this the interesting season that we've been waiting 10 years for? Is this what we tanked for? Is this what we traded O'Reilly away for? Is this what we traded Kane away for? What is it? What is this season? And it's a it's a pickle. Like I, I don't really know what this season is supposed to be. It's not a rebuilding year because the majority of your players have played. Like, hundreds of games in the NHL. And I I was going to, originally, before this Daniel Carcillo interview came together, I'm with Bulldog this afternoon, the interview of the day today was going to be Jason Bottrell from yesterday. Because Bottrell did not really have answers to why he hasn't sought out external improvement for the team. He keeps talking about how... 
he thinks the improvement is going to be internal. And I just don't know how you can get to that point. How he is sitting there yesterday talking about how they need more offense from Connor Sherry and Jimmy VC and Marcus Johansson. Like, I get why you want more from VC. He's got five goals, right? And he's had 17 goals pretty much every year of his career. All right. But is that the major difference you're missing right now? Like, Johansson's on pace, an 82-game pace of 44 points. His career pace is 46. So... You might want more out of him, but it's not fair to expect that much more. Same thing with Sherry. Sherry is a player that throughout his career, he's going to produce when you pair him with an elite centerman. He did it with Crosby in Pittsburgh. He's done it at times when he's been with Eichel here in Buffalo. When he's being centered by Curtis Lazar, I'm sorry, Connor Sherry is not putting 20 goals in the back of the net for you. It's not happening. So really, what the Sabres do need is and what Botchel keeps trying to do is he keeps trying to put these support players in lesser roles where they can't really thrive on their own. And what the Sabres need is more creators. They need more playmakers. They need guys like Middlestat, basically what Middlestat is supposed to be, to show up and be good. So is this a rebuilding year? Maybe it's it's being hidden. Maybe this is a rebuilding year that is covered up by the fact that Larson is still here and Giergensen's is still here and the guys I just mentioned, all those veterans are here and Bogosian is still playing for who knows what reason and Ristolainen is still here and Carter Hutton is still on the roster. And all of that can make you think they're not rebuilding. Look all this dead weight. They're not rebuilding. But maybe, maybe, and I'm not sure this is the right way to go about it, what is the master plan for Jason Bottrell. Is he waiting for Middlestat and Thompson and Cousins and Lukanen and Pilot to sh- to, and Darlene and, and, and those guys to really hit their stride? I pointed this out yesterday on Twitter. I actually like the Sabres' future for their top four defensemen. I believe they have their top four defensemen figured out for the next five years. Darlene, Yoki Haru, Pilot, and Montour is a solid top four going into the future with. But doesn't that sound like the type of thing you would say in a rebuilding year? And I'm just I'm just sick of wasting these Jack Eichel efforts. I really am. They won last night. I don't even mean to sound so negative. They've won two in a row. But this is what the season has been. The story of this season has been Jack Eichel's ascension from a, you know, pretty good number one center in the league to an elite number one center in the league. Top five. All those NHL network ranking lists you look back on in the summer where they were ranking centermen now look like a joke when they had Eichel like 20th. He's one of the best players in hockey. And despite that ascension by the individual, the team ascension has not followed up. It has not come with it. They have not come hand in hand. And at some point, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to make a run here, they're going to make the postseason. One of three things, I guess, could happen. They're going to make the postseason. This a heroic run to erase a seven-point gap that you had a couple of days ago. Or, they're going to make a good run, they're going to play some pretty good hockey the rest of the way, and they're just going to miss. 
And a lot of us will feel pretty good about that. Like, hey, all right, you, you were in it. Like, that's some progress. And we've got all of these guys with expiring contracts, and now we can really start to make changes to the roster, and we get some cap room opened up. And, oh, here come Royal Blue jerseys, too. And everyone will feel a little bit better about the team going into next year. So that could happen. Or three, they continue to struggle. They don't stay in a playoff race. They finish near the bottom of the conference yet again. And now we need to pick a scapegoat. And to me, Bottrell yesterday and some of the answers that he gave makes me think he does not have the answers. And if he does not have the answers by the end of the season and they are not competitive in a playoff race, who else am I supposed to look at to be scapegoated? Who? What's big enough what's a big enough change to really make a big difference? Reinhardt? Because I could guarantee you 99.99, do I even need to do that? Actually, 100% right now would pick Sam Reinhardt over Jason Bottrell to, to stay, not to scapegoat. So that's where I'm at with the team right now. I, I'm, I'm losing some frustration, which is a good thing, but there is still a lot of it built up. And if this thing doesn't continue to turn around like it has in the past couple of games, then I, I, don't, just know, I don't know what else to do with this team anymore. I really don't. We'll get back into hockey in the second hour. We'll get back into hockey when we hear from Daniel Carcillo uh, and hit his interview with Bulldog when we play that back in the second hour. When we come back, though, we're going to switch to the Bills a little bit and also Conor McGregor's return and uh, the UFC pay-per-view event coming up on Saturday. We'll talk with Matt Perino from NewYorkUpstate.com when we return. Here on the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase on W... Call from Mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. UGR. biggest thing and the most impressive part of Josh Allen's game I think has nothing to do with this game itself it's his mentality I think he's extremely cognizant of what he can and can't do at least to us at least when he's speaking to the media and he's trying to relay his thought process to us he knows what he needs to improve on and he generally did a good job of improving in any specific area on a week-to-week basis that is Marcel Louis-Jacques of ESPN and with Howard and Jeremy yesterday we're about to talk some bills and also a lot of UFC here coming up with Matt Perino. Always love having Matt on. And Matt, I think the biggest reason I always love having you on is uh, typically that means there is a big uh, marquee fight coming up on the weekend when uh, when we talk. So uh, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. And you hit it right on the head. I mean, this is this is the biggest fight. I, I mean, even going back to the Habib fight, I mean, this one just feels like 
it's truly like Conor McGregor returning. And right. you know when he's when he's fighting, I mean it's it's a takeover that whole week. And uh, I've felt it since Monday. And as the week's gone by, I mean, what are we? We're about thirty minutes away from the press conference. I'm giddy, man. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Yeah, we'll we'll get you out of here in time to see the press conference too. I'm I'm looking forward to watching that later back or back later myself. Before we do get a full swing into Conor McGregor returning this week against Cowboy Cerrone, um, I do want to ask you a couple of Bills questions though because it's still fresh on the mind. And I read a couple of interesting things that you wrote last week. I want to start with you on the off season, not necessarily looking back, but looking forward. And mm-hmm. I, like Mark, the guy we just played, Marcelo Ijac from ESPN, I'm sure you've had run-ins with him, of course. He is maybe one of the few I've heard think that the Bills don't necessarily need to go out and get that bona fide stud number one wide receiver. Um, and to me, I hear that. I think I, I hear what he's saying, and I, I, I like what he's saying in that they shouldn't just be reckless and just go get the guy no matter what. But I don't know. I don't know how you can't watch this team after this past this past year and think that the Bills don't need that fifty fifty ball, uh, true number one receiver in front of John Brown. Yeah, I, I'm more than running, but he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's been such an addition to the beat. This is my second year on the beat, and mm-hmm. adding Marcel has just been unbelievable. But I get kind of what he's saying um, in that if you look at the entire plan that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have kind of implemented implemented here it's a very patient approach and they want to build through the draft so going out and getting a big uh, free agent whether it be an aj green or an amari cooper or even a brashad perryman who let's be honest probably made himself a lot of money in december i mean you're going to really impact your cap uh for a spot that you know really the you could probably get a better player long term in the draft so i think that there has to be some urgency in terms of getting in the draft after skipping it last year and, you know, going and getting a couple position players. Uh, Maybe Brandon Bean thought that this year was the year to target a wide receiver because of the depth of the class. But I will disagree a little bit in that I do think that that game breaker is missing from this offense. Mm -hmm. I I like Devin Singletary a lot. I like Dawson Knox a lot. John Brown, the 14th best uh, receiving season in Bill's history uh, in his first year. All good stuff. But they need that guy that uh, a team can rely on, uh, you know, in, in big games and big moments. Other defenses, other teams can't take him away, and, and they don't have that guy in this offense right now. Right, completely agree. The other, the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of what they need on the offense, because they, I mean, they were a playoff team this year. We know they have some holes, but there's not a lot of things that they desperately need. One of the more minor things I think they could des- that they might desperately need is that complement to Devin Singletary. So let's stick with the offense. The running back position this offseason, I'd like to see them get a scat back type to complement Singletary. I think Singletary's style fits very well for that first and second down type of running back between the tackles. He's, of course, capable of being the pass-catching back as well. We saw him doing pretty well in that role this season. But I'd like to see the Bills add another, you mentioned game-breaker, just a guy you could dump a screen pass off to from the running back position this season that, hey, he is a threat. He's not always going to do it, but he's a threat at least to take it to the house in any given play. Yeah, I think, you know, two two guys that really jump off to me. One, I'll credit uh, your, your tag team partner, Nate Geary. We were on Instagram mm-hmm. Live earlier this week, and he mentioned uh, Matt Breida uh, as a guy that really stands out in that department. He's a restricted free agent, but, I mean, I watched him a few times this year, and while he had some fumbling issues at times, he is that kind of game-breaker. And the other guy is Kenyon Drake, 
who really popped with Arizona this year. I'm not so sure that he's willing to leave uh, Arizona, but if that's a guy that you can get, uh, you can bring in here, uh, and I think that you're running the money. I don't know if they'll make if they'll uh, uh, use some of their draft capital to go running back again in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think you're exactly right. They need to figure out uh, who can play that role, and maybe it's somebody that we're not even thinking about that some of their pro scouts have, have, have found, and, and that's something that they were really able to do last year, more so on the offensive line when you look at some of the you know no-name, uh, if you will, signings that they had, Spencer Long, John Feliciano, uh, even Quentin Spain to a, to a, to a larger degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been doing a good job at finding talent. So I think that, but, but I do agree that that piece is missing. You, you make a good point though, that they've kind of found talent by not investing a whole lot in it, but with all the cap space they have. So let's throw out the two positions we've even thrown. We've talked about a little bit here, running back and receiver, which could be, I guess we could include running back in this too. I just, I really hope they don't go out and just sign Derrick Henry to a monster contract or Melvin Gordon to a monster contract. I hope that they don't do that. But is there another position you're thinking about that, hey, they've got all this cap space, maybe they will go out, use a big chunk of it on this? Yeah, that's one of my actual, uh, you know, we're putting out our 50 free agent targets for the Bills, and I have this one pretty high, and it's Anthony Costanzo if he decides not to retire. Uh, Left Mm -hmm. tackle with Indianapolis Colts. I think that's a piece. Um, You know, Deion Dawkins did such a great job this year, and, and he wants to be a left tackle, and I think that they even view him as a left tackle. But if you can make a move to bring in a Pro Bowl or potentially even all pro caliber left tackle, who, by the way, there's a connection there with Bobby Johnson. His best season was under Bobby Johnson uh, when he was the assistant uh, offensive line coach in Indianapolis in 2018. And, oh, by the way, that was one of the best seasons that Andrew Luck had, especially from a a staff perspective on, on the offensive line. I just think that that, if you could go out and get another uh, blue chip type player on that offensive line, it changes everything. And and there was a there was a lot of times this year that yeah, could they have used the playmaker? Of course, but they also could have used some the, the the line to hold up in, in big spots. And I go back to that Houston game and one of the one of the sacks where you know the protection just completely broke down. And Josh can't take the sack, but he also needs a little bit more time to try to make a play. Uh, at the end of a big right. game, and so I, I think that that's a guy that you know it just makes too much sense if he does decide to keep playing. Uh, you know, I've heard that there everybody just raved about Bobby Johnson in Indianapolis, so I'm sure that the relationship is really strong there. And Bobby Johnson was a big, uh, a big reason why John Feliciano, uh, Brandon Bean, found John Feliciano. So uh, that's just a name to watch, something to think. And I think that the offensive line could use another big time player, a la a Mitch Morse, to really mm-hmm. bolster it. I, I love that as an idea. I haven't thought a lot about the offensive line or Costanzo as an idea, but I'm always a fan of even philosophically. Like if you can add an all pro talent, go get him and then figure out how the other moving pieces can fall into place afterwards. Um, but if you can get a guy like that, then you you have to do it because you're improving on that position if you do. All right, let's uh, let's get into the pay per view event this week with UFC Conor McGregor, his return to the UFC. And you you kind of mentioned it at the top there. I was going to bring that up as a point here that he fights Khabib in 2018, but this just seems different. It sounds different. Of course, the Khabib fight, the lead-up, all of it was very as personal as any fight I've ever seen in, in the MMA or in boxing. 
And now when you hear McGregor talk, like he's done a lot of media this week, he's talking about this being a season and he wants three fights and hey, if he comes out of this fight unscathed, like if it ends within a couple of minutes, then he wants to be on one of the next upcoming pay-per-views. And it seems more legit. I don't know. I I feel like this, you kind of said it, this is like a legit return for McGregor. Exactly. And I think that what happened in the Khabib um, lead up is that, you know, Connor lost himself a little bit. And, and you, you hear it this week and the things that he's talking about where, you know, he was out partying and drinking the, the right. week of the fight. Just, just absolute, uh, that's chaotic in, in a fight week. I mean, I've been behind the scenes when, you know, watching everything that goes into this thing, the regimented scheduling to the last minute of how you're going to train, how you're going to eat, how you're going to cut weight, all this thing. To, to, to go into a fight with the most dominant fighter of the last five years in Khabib Nurmagomedov and, and, and go in down like that and go in there like with a disadvantage, not to mention the fact that he said that he, he was injured in that fight, going into that fight, mm-hmm. I just think this feels completely different. This feels like a guy that realized what might have what he might have lost in these last two years. You know, he's not the same. Listen, he's still the biggest draw in, in the sport, and, and Muhammad Ali had unbelievable losses in his career that he bounced back from. But for a while there, you were wondering at, at points in 2019, like, is it ever going to be the same? Is he, When he comes back, what's it going to be like? But I will say, now that we're here halfway through fight week, it does feel uh, – as close to you know Conor McGregor fight week as, as mm-hmm. I anticipated it could feel. So that's a that's a good thing for the UFC and for McGregor. Matt Perino at Matt Perino on Twitter from NewYorkUpstate.com is on the Western Hotline, formerly the UFC uh, m- social media director um, or former digital media director for the UFC. We're talking some uh, Conor McGregor and uh, UFC, which is coming up on Saturday, and. The other thing about McGregor for me, before we get into some technical aspects of like the matchup with, with Cowboy on Saturday, is, and I wonder if this is his biggest motivator coming back, because he's had a lot of questions this week. I've watched maybe almost every interview he's done, whether it be with UFC or ESPN or TSN or a BT Sports overseas. I, I've watched a lot of what he's talked about, and what it sounds like to me is that his motivation, of course, at this point is not money. He made so much with the Mayweather fight that it almost feels like it couldn't be money unless he's just blown it all in a couple of years, which seems pretty hard to believe. It feels like do you want do you think like maybe legacy is like what his driving motivation is here? Because the way it ended against Khabib and losing one out of two to Diaz and like he's lost a lot in his last couple of fights. He hasn't won in the UFC octagon in three years. I wonder if a lot of this this season that he's talking about and coming back the way he used to be is that he doesn't want to go out the way he went out and have his legacy look the way it did. The power was taken out of his hands after the Khabib fight and everything that happened in the last you know in the months that followed, whether it be punching the the older gentleman in the pub, uh, some of the domestic violence uh, allegations that have been yep. kind of churning, which he's vehemently denied. You know, breaking people's cell phones. Lost, yeah, exactly, exactly. When he when he lost to Nate Diaz, it was an immediate rematch. He demanded it, and he was handed it. When when Habib, when the Habib loss ha- happened, he wanted that rematch as well, and and he was not granted that. Whether it be 
he wasn't granted it because he didn't deserve it or because he had other things that you know were, were holding him back from it, the power was gone. And so I think he was humbled a little bit in, in this whole process. And I think that that's what we're seeing this week, a humble Conor McGregor that comes in here who has a lot of respect for Donald Cerrone, for, who, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. a UFC record holder, most wins, most knockouts, most uh, head kick knockouts, most finishes. This guy is, is literally uh, an icon in the sport. I mean, I, I don't think even people will – really appreciate what Cowboy Cerrone has done in this sport until, you know, 10 years after he's gone because he has lost a, a bunch of fights, but it's because of the insane pace that he's kept up his entire career. The guy fights every couple months. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, right. it's, it's never been accomplished. And so it, it's a great matchup because now he gets the shine that, you know, only really comes with a Conor McGregor fight. I mean, you could fight for the for every title that is out there. I mean, you could be Henry Cejudo with two titles and, you know, come up with a whole little altered, you know, uh, gimmick, and it's still not as big as fighting Conor McGregor. And so, you know, this is a, this is a legacy, you know, his legacy is on the line. I, I, I said it this, this week on, on, a, on another show I was doing. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's a gamble. If he comes back and, and he is not the same Conor McGregor, and oh, by the way, he broke his hand, his left hand, the moneymaker in training before a fight that he was trying to get uh, middle of last year. So what the, what's that going to be like? That's a question going into this thing. But if he doesn't come back and dominate and be the you know Conor McGregor that everybody remembers, I mean, his, his brand is going to take a hit. Because after all, all the great one-liners and all the great press conference moments, the Conor McGregor... Uh, business is based on winning and based on the way that he won and the way that he embarrassed champions. I mean, Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, Eddie Alvarez, the wrestler at a weight class up, just completely outclassing him and knocking him out in the second round. Nobody did that to the underground king. And Connor made it look easy. That was how he built the brand. And now what you have is you know, uh, he showed up and fought Floyd Mayweather, and he was respectable in that fight, but a loss, and then got embarrassed by Habib and, and embarrassed by a whole lot of other things. So a lot's on the line for him this week. I, I think he's got his head screwed on right this week, and he sounds good and everything looks good. And, and usually when he's motivated, that's a dangerous opponent uh, that the Cowboy's going to face. Yeah, I, I like a lot of what you said there, and it has me thinking about Right, like what's on the line for him in this fight? There's way more on the line for him to me than than Cowboy. And I'm not to say that this fight isn't important to Cowboy too, but he's 36 years old. He's already got a couple of recent losses. And I almost feel like the UFC, in part, wanted him to have this fight just because he's been such a good soldier for them. And like you said, he's fought like week with with only weeks' uh, notice. Um, There was the one after uh, Dos Anjos drops out of the McGregor fight and it became Diaz. Like, (laughs) it was 10 days before. Cowboy was ready to do it and start cutting weight to get ready for that fight on short notice. And I almost feel like they, they feel good for him getting this payday. But for McGregor... Right, if he loses, like, where do you even go from there? This season that he's talking about, this Habib rematch, this Diaz trilogy, like, Masvidal, like, it all, to me, just seems like, what are we really doing here? Because, yeah, for me, what drew me to McGregor originally as a fan of him, and I would hazard to say he got me into that sport. Like, I was a big boxing fan, but I, McGregor is a big reason, I'm sure there are others out there like me, where I started to 
draw to the UFC because of him. Well, why was that? It was because, yes, he, the, the, the talk game was awesome. The press conferences are hilarious, and he's so witty in them, but he always backed it up. And now if you go three out of five fights losing and you haven't won in the UFC in three years, then to me, all of that could go up in smoke. I don't want to spend too much time talking legacy with him here because I do think the fight itself is interesting. So I want to talk to you technically about this fight between McGregor and Cowboy. I think a lot of people that don't really know Cowboy that well think that he's just going to try to take McGregor to the ground and that, oh, grappling is what he's going to try to, his his method of victory in this fight. And I do think, of course, he's a better grappler. He's better on the ground than McGregor is here. But for those who have watched Cerrone, like, he likes to stand up and trade. So I think this could just be a flat-out war. I think it's going to be a war, and I think that uh, Cowboy has come out and said that his plan is to stand up with him. He wants to see what, what the big deal is uh, all about, especially at 170 where I feel like he holds the advantage because if you go back to the Diaz fight, uh, Connor came in on, on weigh-in day like four or five pounds under the 170 limit. And so he's going to be a small 170 on fight night. So it, it's, it's kind of finding out does that power hold up. And the one thing I will defend Connor a little bit about, listen, all the takedowns against Habib, Habib is the most dominant wrestler that's ever competed mm. in any weight class. I mean, the guy is just an absolute mauler. Uh, I mean, you could make an argument for Daniel Cormier or Cain Velasquez, but Khabib is just a different animal. So take that out of the, out of there. The way he has fought, the few wrestlers that he has fought, I've been pretty impressed with with Connor and his ability to not only uh, survive on the ground but get back up in in certain instances, defend the takedown. Um, I, I think he'll he'll have a real good chance at not only defending the takedown but holding his own on the ground. I mean, his coach John Kavanaugh is a jiu-jitsu uh, expert. I mean, that's. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure he has his black belt as well. So, if wherever this fight goes, I'm confident that either of these guys are are going to be comfortable. Uh, they're both veterans. Cowboy is a, a super veteran. I mean, the guy's been doing it for mm-hmm. years and years and years, more than probably anybody. I mean, at 50 fights under the Zufa banner, whether it be WEC or UFC, that's absolutely unbelievable stat. Uh, but what I think it comes down to is. Uh, Don, or, uh, Gilbert Melendez put out a good piece with ESPN with Dominic Cruz. Uh, I, I retweeted it. Oh yeah, and I saw he this. basically yep. said, "Yep, he basically said that because of Connor's footwork and the way that he bounces in and out, he's untouchable for the first seven minutes of the fight because that's when the cardio's up. That's when he has all the energy and he can really just just keep you at bay and launch that left hand. And so that ca- causes a problem for Cowboy because he's a slow starter uh, historically." So if he's a slow starter, if he comes out and gets dinged early, I mean, it takes me back to that Rafael Dos Anjos fight years ago when he finally got his title shot and got starched in the first round. You know, Conor McGregor can do that. And, and I think that that's probably where I'm leaning as we're, as we're a few days out from the fight is Conor really overwhelming Cowboy early on. He's coming off of two losses, uh, the decision against Ferguson and then the nasty knockout at the hands of Justin Gagey. And I think that Conor McGregor is a better striker than Justin Gagey. So mm-hmm. we'll see. I mean, this is... Man, this is this is fun. This is this is that kind of chess match that you know. I mean, Cowboy can mess around and go off of his back foot and hit him with a left high kick and and end the night real quick. So there's a lot of ways that both of these guys can win. I believe. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it, and it has me, of course, thinking about. And I think like both of these guys, McGregor has been asked a lot about, like, oh, what's next? What's next? And he kind of doesn't want to answer it as much um, because he's been a little bit more humble in this media circuit, but. I'm going to ask you the question that a lot of people are asking McGregor. If 
he gets past Cerrone with a victory. He's the favorite right now. I, I don't think that it, it's expected to be like, it's not a long shot or anything that Cerrone could win, but he's certainly the underdog. So let's say McGregor gets through Cerrone on Saturday. In your perfect world, McGregor, the three fights he's talked about having this year, what would your perfect three fights be? Um, so I, I think next, I mean, I think he'll definitely be, uh, on hold for in case something happens with Ferguson and Khabib, because obviously mm-hmm. we all know it's their history, but I think the next fight should be Gagey. I think that that's the most uh, exciting fan friendly fight that the, that the UFC can put on. Uh, I'm not interested in, in the 170 as much. I think that, uh, I think Masvidal, Usman and, and Covington, uh-huh. when he gets it, when he gets his jaw fixed, uh, any of those three can will will beat McGregor, I think. I, I just think they're horrible matchups for him. They're they're so good everywhere. They're they're real true one seventy guys. Even though Masvidal used to fight at one fifty five, he's a one seventy now. Uh so I would like to see him fight Gagey. I would like to see him uh you know if he wins that fight maybe fight for the, the one fifty five title. But I still think there's unfinished business with Nate. I would love to see that trilogy. I think that they talked about the trilogy uh for years and years and years and maybe if the Gagey if he gets a fight maybe he can fit in the, the Nate fight. Uh, and maybe put that at 155, and because we already saw it at 170 twice, maybe put them at their natural weight class if Nate can even make it back down to 155 anymore. But I think that that's where that's where it stands, and and you always have potential of a touch weight uh, with Frankie Edgar at some point. Just a another situation mm-hmm. like the UFC, just you know, given given the fight to Frankie after all these years, where it feels like that fight should have been made a dozen times. Uh, and even Connor has said that he wished that fight was made. So, yeah. you know, there's so many options. But like we said at the beginning, if he loses, I mean, really, that, that takes you down to probably, you know, uh, a, a marquee fight against Nate just for the nostalgia factor of it uh, and, the, and the name recognition. Other than that, I mean, he's not sniffing a title shot if he loses this fight. Yeah, obviously, completely agree with that. I, I will agree and disagree with you on the Masvidal idea. I agree that I just think Masvidal would maul him, and I just think that's a horrible matchup for McGregor. But man, would I be excited for that fight. Like The hype would be awesome, and the matchup would be so interesting to me that I would be there for that. Um, but I agree. I don't want to see him go up to 170 that much, as much as he's talking about. Sticking with the 155 division for a second here, before I let you go, Matt... The Habib rematch, if it happens, we'll see if it happens even as soon as when Ferguson and Habib are supposed to match up. Because, like you said, they've already um, tried that fight four times and it's never happened. Someone's always pulled out. Whether it happens there, whether it happens later, we saw the first matchup. Habib dominates him for three of the four rounds. It was pretty even in the third round. McGregor snuffed him, I think, four times in that round for takedowns. Landed a couple of shots. And we talked about earlier how maybe his camp leading up to that point, and we know because he said it this week that he was drinking during that, that camp and that he was partying and that maybe he didn't take it as seriously. With a serious training camp, with a focused Conor McGregor, almost a zen-like Conor McGregor that we've seen this week, do you think he has it in him to beat Habib even if he wouldn't, be, even if he wouldn't pick him to win the fight or favored to win the fight? Does he have it in him? Public service announcement. Do not listen to Stephen A. Smith when he talks about <laughs> MMA or boxing. Because he said this week, uh, I was listening to something, and he said, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we already know Oh, about the, the potential Mayweather rematch, but we already know that he can't beat Khabib. He 100% can beat Khabib, okay? If you go back and watch that fight, uh, if he did have an injury, uh, that definitely impacted the exchanges. 
And I was really, until the fourth round, wasn't very impressed with Khabib's ground and pound against, against Connor. And the best uh, ground and pound of the first 15 minutes that he had in the second round, you're right, Connor came back in the third and had his best round of the fight. Uh, so I don't, think we, we, I don't think we saw what this fight really could be. And I think that if he comes out here and has one of those, you know, uh, defining Connor McGregor moments against uh, Cowboy, I think that they make that fight, I, I, and, and who knows? Who I mean, but to be to before we get there, before we put the cart before the horse, I'm picking Tony Ferguson in that fight. I Ooh. think Tony Ferguson is better than Khabib everywhere. I think he's better on the feet. I think he can knock him out on the feet, and he's not a KO artist. But with the way that Khabib leaves his chin out there, he's not going to be able to take Tony Ferguson down with the type of regularity he does everybody else. And if he does. He's looking at elbows from the ground. He's looking at constant movement, constant cardio, and some crazy, crazy submissions off of his back. Tony Ferguson is a nightmare matchup for Khabib. Yeah, I, I almost wish we got to that sooner. Um, I, I like what you said there about Ferguson at the end because I I'm, don't pretend to be an expert on the UFC or anything. I'm still uh, learning more and more about the sport. But that guy, when he's on his back on the ground, I'm not sure I've seen anybody else be as good from his back um, as Ferguson. So I, I like that pick. Maybe I'll have you on again before that fight because I'm also – like that. that's not – necessarily the name recognition uh, to casual fans between Tony Ferguson and and Habib, but maybe that's worthy. So I'm looking forward to that. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining me, man. I always love talking UFC uh, whenever we get the chance, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. Thanks. There is Matt Perino from NewYorkUpstate.com on the West Her Hotline. We will take a timeout now, and um, we'll get back into the Sabres and uh, a little bit on what Matt had to say on the Bills there in this short segment we have coming up before we launch full speed back into hockey in our number two. That's all on the way. If you want to get in on the conversation here, you can do that at 716-803-0550. I'm always checking my Twitter as well, at SneakyJoeWGR, so you can hit me up there if you'd like also. So Nightcap with Joe DiBiase. Stay tuned. I think there were times this year he was extremely good technically. And then also, of course, there was times I'd see a throw and i go, my gosh, his arm almost hit the goalpost behind him. He reached back so far. But his talent is undeniable. I love him as a quarterback. I think that the Bills as a team did a really good job with the quarterback and how he was incorporated into the offense and what Sean McDermott really wanted to see with a second-year quarterback. That is Phil Sims. Who, by the way, I was not a fan of him in the broadcast booth, but we could see him back in the broadcast booth. There are a lot of reports going around that ESPN is going to make Tony Romo the highest paid broadcaster in history uh, to join Monday Night Football. And if that happens, you remember Romo took Phil Simms' spot. They bumped Sims into the studio, put Romo with Nance. Well, now if Romo leaves, do they just go back to Sims? I mean, I'd hope they wouldn't, but he's making a point there about Allen and um, some of the wildness that we saw with him this season and what he's looking at technically. We just had Matt Perino on from NewYorkUpstate.com. We talked mostly about Conor McGregor and the UFC event with him versus Donald Cerrone coming up on Saturday. Always love talking UFC on the show, especially when Matt's around. And um, But he also, at the beginning there, we talked about some of the options the Bills could have in the offseason. And one thing Matt said that is not quite to what Marcel Louis-Jacques said yesterday, 
but is probably where I'm landing on the whole wide receiver conversation. Like, hey, should they draft one in the first round? T. Higgins is going to the draft now, the Clemson wide receiver. And there's like a bunch of other guys that are worthy of first round picks. Or should they go big game hunting? Should they go be chasing A.J. Green or see if they could trade for Amari Cooper? That's assuming Cooper doesn't make it free agency, which I probably bet he wouldn't. Trading for Cooper even seems pretty unrealistic, but like an idea like that. Is that what they should be exploring? And I don't need them to be reckless, but I need them to be aggressive. If last year's version of the Giants call to Brandon Bean, which is reported for to gauge the Bills' interest in Odell Beckham, I need them to take that call and to make an offer. I need them to do that. If another team comes calling and they want to know if you're interested in their number one wide receiver, the Bills need to be in on that. Regardless of what it costs, draft pick-wise, because you have a 22nd overall pick that if you can get a true number one for the short term and the long term, you do that. Coupled with the fact that you have $90 million in cap space. So the salaries shouldn't be too much of a hindrance for you to be able to do it either. I don't know who that player is. A lot of those guys don't come available. Just flat out. Tampa's probably not coming calling with uh, with um, Mike Evans. New Orleans is not coming with uh, Michael Thomas. They're not going to want to know if you're interested. Houston's not going to with DeAndre Hopkins. It's just not going to happen. You would need a team that is about to blow it up. Still a thought that Beckham could be made available again in Cleveland. I would love the Bills to be in on that. I love Beckham as a player. I think that coaching was the biggest and injury was the biggest reason that he didn't have the season everyone thought he was going to in Cleveland. Also, Mayfield just kind of stunk last year. You brought bring him here with Allen. Suddenly, all those 50-50 balls that they were throwing to Duke Williams and Cole Beasley and John Brown, the the odds of those now being caught go way up. Way up if you trade for Odell Beckham. Realistically, they're not going to be able to pull off an idea that big. So I'm starting to think about guys that can get in the draft. I love the T. Higgins idea from Clemson. I'm starting to wonder if he'll fall to 22. And then we'll have to have a conversation uh, as we get closer to draft time about uh, whether the Bills should trade up or not. Draft conversations. We're getting closer. Probably a month or two away still. But you never know. All right, we'll take a timeout here. We will go back into the Sabres and hockey, and we'll also hear from Daniel Carcillo in the second hour coming up if you missed him with the Bulldog earlier today. One of the best interviews, if not my my favorite interview in terms of uh, in- interest level um, that we've had here on the station in a really long time. Carcillo, super thorough, um, super detailed, passionate, and brings to light a lot of issues happening behind the scenes in the NHL that a lot of people just want to turn away and not think about, but are there and need to be thought about and need to be corrected. Um, And he talks with Bulldog uh, for about a half hour. We'll play that back for you coming up in the 8 o'clock hour. But first, the Sabres, is this a real playoff race? And also, a question that I posed earlier in the week on social media, how many points do they need to be out to be buyers at the trade deadline? Because I think if they're within four by the deadline, which is about a month away, I think they should be buyers. We'll get into that when we come back on the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase on WGR.
Enjoy a tall, cool dude. What is this? What, what are we doing? What in God's name are we doing? What? Our lives! What, what kind of lives are these? We're like children. We're not men. No, we're not. We're not men. It's the nightcap. Are we going to be sitting here when we're 60 like two idiots? We should be having dinner with our sons when we're 60. We're pathetic. You know that? Yeah, like I don't know that I'm pathetic. On WGR Sports Radio 550. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes. Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. You know, once upon a time... This show on Wednesdays was known as Wednesday Friendsday. That was more of the Ryan Gates era of the show, I would say. But I should have labeled it coming into the show Wednesday Friendsday. We had Matt Perino on earlier today. Brendan Keeney now, WBEN, hopping in studio. Great to be here. Um, my brother's lurking around. Maybe he'll walk in at any point. I don't know. All friends. Yeah, it's Wednesday Friendsday. I think it qualifies. You have to have more than one, but I think now that uh, we've achieved that, we're uh, we're able to call it that. I- I'm I was gonna talk some sabers here. You ready to talk some sabers? Let's talk some sabers. I, I am at a p- level of frustration still, even though they've won two in a row. You know, two games in a row, one win over Detroit isn't necessarily going to erase the feeling you've had over the course of the season. One thing I wanted to get into, and by the way, if you want to get with me and Brendan here, who's we're going to be going for a, probably about a half hour, and then I promised Daniel Carcillo for you uh, with the Bulldog earlier. We'll bring you that back um, just at, at about 8.30. So 803-0550 if you want to join us. The question I posed to everybody going into the break is how many points out at the deadline, which is closing in, like it's about a month away, how many points out of the playoffs do they have to be to be buyers? Because... My patience level is so low with this team that I'd be like, hey, if you're four points out, just do it. Like, I I need to see a competitive race down the stretch. I need to have an interesting season because I don't really know what the season is supposed to be right now. What do you define as a buyer, though? Are you talking about a Michael Froley kind of buyer, or are you talking about, like, a Taylor Hall go? I know Taylor Hall obviously was traded, but you understand that kind of player. I see what you mean. What was was the Montour trade last year? They traded for Montour at the deadline. That wasn't necessarily a buyer's move because of where they were, but that's the type of trade that a buyer does. You know what I mean? Yes, but Montour also came with a lot of security. Exactly. He came with term. He was going to be an RFA at the end of his term. So that, yeah, while it happened near the deadline, and I have liked the Montour trade so far, um, I don't consider it the same kind of thing. It, It wasn't a deadline deal in the sense you are getting this player and maybe a lot of you you see a lot of UFAs. That's the kind of the buyer deal that I'm looking sure. for. And I'm not really ready with this team, and I might not be ready unless they go on a crazy winning streak to devote any sort of future asset into a short term rental. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. And it, it would be different if there were some guys out there. Like there's one player that might become available as a rental that I could have a conversation about keeping long term. That would be John Gabriel Pajot in Ottawa right now. But he's having a career year. He's probably going to get a bigger contract than you want to give him. I, I don't know. I just I don't know where else to go with this team right now. I don't even know how to talk about this team right now because I I kind of said this before. I don't really know what this season is supposed to be. They're not really rebuilding. They have too many they have too much dead weight for it to be a rebuilding team. They have too many guys who have 
that have played several hundred games in the league that are in minor roles. Like, who are they supposed to be expecting more out of? Bottrell's talking about yesterday, hey, we need more out of Connor Sherry and Jimmy VC, and Marcus Johansson. And I'm sitting here like, how much more can you expect out of these guys? They've all played multiple hundreds of games in the league. Like, you should know what they give you at this point. Sure. I agree with that. I... It's very hard. Like you're saying, it's very difficult to even really assess what this team is. They'll play. I thought they played well last night against a, a good did, Vegas yeah. team. Uh, they're not. They're not the Vegas team of two years ago where they're you know on fire. No, obviously they good. just fired their coach today, which I can't. Yeah, I the still coach can't killers, believe. Apparently. I cannot believe that they're only three points out of the division. Could yeah. you imagine if the Sabers coach? Was three points out of the division lead right now, Kruger? He would be a coach of the year favorite. That's, probably. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's. <laughs> but I mean, in all seriousness, you look at a team. They played very well against a team, Vegas, that mm-hmm. is right there. I believe they're tied for a playoff spot in the wild card. I believe they're nine. Yeah, they are. Yep. yeah like fifty-six points. If, if if the Sabers had fifty-six points right now, we're talking about playoffs, and we are seriously having a conversation about what do we want from this team at the deadline. We're a little bit behind. We're only five. The Sabers are only five points out right now. Five points out of a playoff spot. That's not crazy with thirty-some games to go. But I'm just not. I haven't seen. Even the Detroit win left a sour taste in my mouth because of how poor they played in the second period yeah. against. One of the worst teams ever assembled. Like they, they Detroit wins. is really bad. They have twelve wins and they only have nine non Montreal wins. Three of their twelve wins are against the Canadians. Amazingly, um, but yeah, like I agree with that. Like you've got to be. It's it's all about expectations and what the level of expectations are, and there should be a difference between what you should realistically be able to expect from the team and what you want from the team. Like the Bills this past year, going into the season, my thought was, well, they should be good this year, but I don't necessarily think that they're going to be a playoff team. They ended up proving me wrong. They were a legit playoff team, and they were comfortably a playoff team. The Sabres this year were kind of the same thing. This is a year where you should be in the mix to make the playoffs, but do I think that they're going to be in the mix to make the playoffs? Like I don't know did if they've you, quite proven that. In all seriousness, did you really think that before the season they were going to be in the no. mix to make the playoffs? No, I didn't. So, but I thought that they should. That the the timeline on where Botchel is third year as the GM, like this should now be like the Bills. It took them a couple years. I know it's different sports, but it shouldn't take you much longer than three years to start to put your picture into place. So year three with the GM. That's really when you should start to be good. And again, I didn't think they were going to be good, but isn't that when you're supposed to like start to be figuring things out and starting to see this improvement? How much do you put into GMs? Obviously, drafting ability is important. Especially, yeah. it's important. But how much stock do you put into, you know, to me, the NFL is a league where the draft should net should net you at least two starters in a given a draft, assuming you have a first and a second round pick, yep. and then probably more if you have an early third round pick. It should at least net you that much and then depth along the way mm-hmm. throughout the rest. The NHL is very weird. I don't even know what to expect in a given year right. about where you should be. Say Casey Middlestat turned into the player we all saw at World Juniors a couple years ago. Mm. That player that tra- that translated perfectly into the NHL. What are we talking about then? Like 
yes, Bottrell, a lot of people have said that he has neglected his duties in making the, especially the, the middle six, I would say, forward group yep. as good as it can be. How much different does it look if middle stat pans out? And how much blame are we putting on him for that? Yeah, that, that, that's a good thought. I, I don't know. I think that that's a hard what if, though, because Middlestad has not been that player. And there have been other guys that were drafted around him that do do that. Like, if, if he had become Elias Pettersson, who I think was picked fifth in that draft, and has been a flat-out stud for Vancouver, like a true number one center, if he had been that player, then... We're probably not having any conversation about Bottrell's future with the team because if they had that player to replace O'Reilly when he walked out the door, they're probably a playoff team. Like That is, to this day, their biggest hole on their roster is scoring especially down the middle. So Now, you could also just make the argument that he should have never gotten rid of O'Reilly to begin with and that he wouldn't have been in that position where Middlestat would have to pan out for it to be a successful uh, team. That's the trend I don't like. The trend with this GM and this regime so far has been too much reliance on kids to come in and fill major roles. I have no issue with Middlestad being on your team as a teenager. I have no issue with Darlene being on your team as a teenager, Tage Thompson to a lesser extent on your team. But when these guys are being pressured to produce because you've got no one else in the second-line center spot or you've got no other number-one defenseman. And I'm worried next year that's going to happen with Uka Pekalukkanen. Like, honestly, he's like the number-one or number-two goalie prospect in the world right now. Is Bottrell going to think to himself, hmm, I could go out and get Alex Georgiev or I could go sign some mid-level goalie in the free agent market to pair with Olmark for next year because you cannot go into next year with Carter Hutton. Like, come on, this guy cannot play almost for you right now even. I'm thinking about guys in Rochester at the moment. Will he think to himself, I'm going to go sign that guy. I'm going to go trade a third-round pick for this guy. Or will he go, I got this Lukanen kid, and he might be ready to roll, and he might be amazing right away, so I'm just going to put him with Allmark, and uh, we'll be fine to go from there. Because that's the trend that's been happening with these young guys coming into the lineup. And the one, I, when, what, what choice do you have, though? Well, like the choice what? is you can go out and acquire other players, right. not I, re-sign Larson, not re-sign Giergensen. I understand that. You, have, you yeah. can do that with a second-line winger. Can you do that as effectively with a second-line no. center? No, you're right. You traded away your best asset in O'Reilly. They right? did. You're not, you're not trading Eichel. You're not trading Darlene. So what do you really have in this organization other than Casey Middlestat? Should, should we have a Reinhardt conversation here? I don't want them to trade oh, him. But... I mean, I know you're on the Reinhardt being a second-line center oh, train. I can't believe it hasn't happened, man. I can't believe it hasn't happened. They, they, how have they not gotten to the desperation point where they would least like to try it? They got desperate enough at that position to put Johansson at that position when he hadn't played it in years. But they haven't reached that point with Reinhardt. I don't know. Here's but, a- but the larger question there is, you said Middlestat would be like the guy that you would have a conversation me, about, right? To me, Who Middlestat, he was the X factor coming into this year. But I, but I don't blame Middlestat, if that makes any sense. I think Middlestat yeah, was the X factor coming into this year. If he were to come out, break out and have even even like a 50-point, a 45-50-point to 50 point season, mm-hmm. I think the whole dynamic of your top six, let alone middle six, changes dramatically. You don't need Johansson playing up there. You can have him out on the win. I think what that would have done for the rest of your lineup would have been pretty huge. But I yeah. don't blame him for not being ready. Let's not forget, he played high school hockey when he was a first-round pick. 
He did sure. not play juniors. He did not play. So I, I'm I, not judging him either on what he'll be long term because of this. Exactly. But that doesn't also mean he shouldn't be untouchable. I agree with that. But I'm I'm I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think Casey Middle I don't blame Casey Middlestat for okay. not having the best start to or an optimal start to his NHL career. I, I think I he was put in a p- position where he couldn't really succeed where he was supposed to be a second-line center taking over for Ryan O'Reilly, who's a very, very good defensive center and also produces points. We've we got about 10 minutes or actually about five or six minutes left here before we get you to a break and then to Daniel Carcillo, which I promise for you this hour. Um, feel free to join in on the Sabres conversation we're having here. Brendan Keeney, WBEN, joining me in studio. 803 is the number. Let's get Nick in here. Nick, you're on the nightcap. What's up? Hello, guys. I mean, I absolutely love listening to you guys because you Thanks, man. about everything that I'm thinking. I mean, you guys should be the number one sports team going. Mm. Anyways, I look at the Sabres. If they were a movie, I, I mean, I'm, I just turned 60 years old. So I've been here since the very beginning. To me, this is like if the Sabres were a movie, it would be Groundhog Day. It's just the <laughs> same thing over and over and over. It's the same type of player, the 5'8", 175, who can fly, and blah, blah, blah. And it's the same. I don't care. The names change. But if you listen, to, if you watch the hockey game and you didn't listen to the announcers, you'd swear it's the same players for the last 25 years. It's the same thing. And I honestly believe, I know you guys are in love with Reinhardt. I think Reinhardt could be traded. The only reason I think they haven't tried him at center because I don't think he has the foot speed to keep up with them. And you can tell when they use him on three-on-three in overtime, it's always a fiasco. I mean, unless we control the puck and Jack has the puck and everything and Sam goes in front of the net. But if we lose the puck, God forbid, Sam's not fast enough to get back into play. And it cost us a lot of points in overtime a couple years ago. See, I don't yeah. really, I don't really think O'Reilly. Is, I don't think of O'Reilly as a fast skater. I think at Reinhardt's all. faster than O'Reilly. Yeah, I, I, I would say Reinhardt's faster than O'Reilly. I, I, there are reasons that I mean, o, Reinhardt's stints as being a center have not translated well. And I know that was a while ago. And I know that he's a much different player than he was. He also got then not great line mates. He was playing with Seth sure. Griffith and Nick Baptiste. But sure. Yeah. So I don't think you can totally judge him based on his couple stints. As as right. being a center, I don't think that you can point to foot speed as being paramount of importance when Ryan O'Reilly sure is not yeah. a quick center. And that's not it's not the only case of that. Like Patrice Bergeron in Boston, like he's not a bad skater, but he's not blazing he doesn't have this blazing speed or anything, and he's a great centerman as well. That's the guy, by the way, that we all compared Reinhardt to coming into his career. Anzi Kopitar, don't think of as a fast skater. Yeah, and I don't need him to be a superstar like these guys that we're talking about. I just need him to be my second best center on the team. And I think that he is that. And I don't think that he's gotten the proper opportunity to show it because you mentioned it was a couple years ago. Housley tried him there for about three games. And the only the only guys he tried him out with were Giergensen's, Baptiste, and Seth Griffith. Like what do you want from him? And he also was not fully developed as a player. Like he took major strides last season and this season as well. Like his shot has improved mightily. The goal he scored yesterday, which by the way, great pass from Risto in front to the high slot. Reinhardt puts that top corner from a stationary position. I feel like the first three years of his career, Reinhardt's not getting that much on a shot unless he is skating into it. So he's developed, but it it comes down to me where you are in the standings, where you are as a team, and the fact that there's, to me, no excuse for not even at least trying that out as an idea. How do you feel about 
how highly do you feel of Eichel at this point where you don't need to surround him with really anyone? I think that is a major... Oh, he's reached that level for me. Okay, so if, if like that's that Crosby the you level, feel... like just throw a couple of third liners with him and they'll so score you, 20 you goals. you think he's there then? Yeah, I do. I'd like, to, because of what they have, I'd like to have one of my really good goal scorers with him. I, I've said this multiple times. I don't need Reinhardt with him. I'd so, like to have Olofsson or Skinner, though. Okay. So... I don't want to completely divulge him of talent on either wing. I think you signed Skinner nine million bucks because you thought you were playing him with Eichel for a large part of that contract. Um, so I don't need Froelich and Gergensen's with him, but I, I also don't need my best two wingers playing with him. If you know what I mean, like I don't yeah. need them to go back to Olafson and Reinhardt as that line. And I think they've showed that with throwing Gergensen's up there yeah. that like they they're comfortable with him just having one guy. On his wing, man. But do, it's like, 2020, just, and Zemgus Gierens is still on their top line, by the way. <laughs> Holy yeah. cow. All right. Thanks for jumping in, man. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. We are going to take a timeout here. Uh, that was Brendan Keeney, WBEN, by the way. Um, and then when we come back, we'll hear from Daniel Carcillo, one of the best interviews I've ever heard us have on the station here. Super powerful, in-depth on concussions in the NHL, Steve Montador and his trial upcoming, um, abuse in hockey he goes all in on all of it when he with bulldog we'll play that back for you when we return here on the nightcap with joe dibiase on wgr we get it attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on netflix but what do people do with their ears well for one they're listening to audio americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day oh and you want the proof well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.